Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. So today, episode nine, Murder in the Rockies. Ted Bundy has now exhausted (laughs) the police of Washington State, Utah State, and now he's decided to go to Colorado. It only gets worse because he just continues to kill people. This episode features potential wife swapping, exes who can't seem to take a hint, Ted Bundy once more being a goddamn creep. It's a wild ride from start to finish, and as always, trigger warning for gratuitous violence, sexual assault, uh, graphic details of a description of an autopsy. You know, it's, it's dealing with Ted Bundy. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get into it. So to kick off this episode, we hear from Ted Bundy's girlfriend. No, not Liz. He's back on his fuckboy shit. We hear from Wanda, his Utah side piece. Wanda was Ted Bundy's Utah like housemate, possibly girlfriend. So we hear that Wanda was naturally terrified when a rapist began attacking the women in their neighborhood of the Avenues that summer and fall. I do not know if this rapist was Ted Bundy uh, because, you know, it didn't say it said rapist, not like murderer. So I don't know if it was Ted Bundy. I'm going to maybe say no, because as we learned with Nancy Wilcox, he did not have it in him to, quote unquote, only rape someone. He literally was so fucking crazy that he was just murdering people, even, quote unquote, by accident. So these niggas are just fucking crazy. Again, if you don't know how to use your dick, you deserve to have it cut off. So I said what I said. If you don't like it, then are you a rapist? Because, okay. Anyway, so there's some fucking bitch running around raping women in the avenues, their like little college area of Utah. And this caused Wanda to carry a hammer in her purse and leave heavy objects all over her apartment just in case a nigga wanted to fuck around and find out. Coupled with this rapist, soon bodies were being found in nearby canyons. One evening, Wanda and Ted Bundy were watching the news when the story of Debbie Kent flashed into the screen. In The Killer Next Door, the exchange was documented as follows. Wanda said, It worries me to have a guy like that running around loose. Why would a woman let something like that happen to her? I would kill him first, she said forcefully, thinking perhaps of the hammer in her purse. Pause. Uh, fuck you, Wanda. Fuck you, Wanda. Why would a woman let something like that happen to her? Are you fucking kidding me? It's the victim blaming for me. No, sweetie. That is not how assault works. No one lets some shit like that happen to them. Ooh, I hope, I hope that this individual had some sort of introspection, reflection, I hope she realizes that what she said is so fucking dangerous and the primary reason why shit like this just happens and why women are afraid to report their sexual assault to authorities because they get blamed. Oh, well, why'd you let it happen to you? What were you wearing? Were you walking by yourself? Like dumb shit like this. No, we should be able to do whatever the fuck we want, wear whatever the fuck we want without getting assaulted. And again, if these stupid ass motherfuckers don't know how to control their hands or dicks, I think we should be allowed to cut them the fuck off. I said what I fucking said, period, point blank, the end. Maybe if niggas start losing their dicks, they'd be like, hmm, 
I should maybe think about my actions. Like, look up Lorena. L-O-R-E-N-A. She literally cut off her husband's dick because he was a fucking piece of shit who was like raping her and threatening her with like deportation of all this dumb shit, whatever. Anyway, she cut off his dick and he was still trying to get with her. And she was like, I'm sorry, literally what else do I have to do? I cut off your dick. Anyway, so she says like, why would a woman let that happen? Blah. And she was like, I would never let something like that happen to me. I would kill him first. When she turned to Ted, his eyes had grown very wide. You would kill him, he said? Yes, I would kill him. Well, you don't have to worry about that, Ted remarked. Wanda let the matter drop. And Wanda was also apparently used to Ted Bundy's habit of dropping an odd remark or pulling some practical joke. Sometimes, (laughs) my God, sometimes he would sneak along the side of her first floor apartment and stare through the window at her without saying anything until she noticed him. Of course, it scared the ever-living shit out of her every time, especially with the Avenue's rapist running around. But she just let it happen. She was just like, huh, yeah, he sometimes like looks at like, what the, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> no, 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 no. Ah, ah. In the words of Cardi B, don't you give these niggas none? Anyway, apparently Ted Bundy also made it a habit of darting out from behind bushes grabbing her and holding her until, quote, her rigid body relaxed. What the fuck? That is not funny. That is not cute. That is terrifying and weird and creepy and immature and stupid. And why, why? What the fuck? What, like, Jesus fucking Christ. So then at one point in The Killer Next Door, The writers go on to describe a situation in which Ted Bundy somehow convinced Wanda that he knew who the rapist was. He said the man lived in a decrepit apartment building down the street with a group of men who were transients on welfare. Excuse me. I'm pretty sure these men, it probably was like a halfway house maybe. And these men were probably just trying to get on with their fucking lives. Ted Bundy claims he knows that this rapist lives right here in this house. Did he suggest calling the police? No. Want to know what he did? He suggested that he and Wanda should walk over to that house where this supposed rapist lived. And as they approached the house, the man Ted told her about came out and sat on the porch. Go on, walk by, see what he'll do. Ted, she turned to him with a note of tension in her voice. I'm too nervous. I don't want to. Go on, go on, walk by. Nothing's going to happen. Apparently a playful smile lit Ted's face. Wanda refused. And finally, Ted apparently would often tease Wanda by claiming he had a preference for virgins. Apparently, the stupid bitch said, well, you know, Wanda, I really prefer virgins. In fact, I can have one anytime I want. He wore a mischievous grin while he said it. Wanda, not thinking this is weird, apparently, joined in the playful spirit of the conversation and said, oh, really, Ted? aren't they kind of hard to find nowadays? Wanda got up and shot a sidelong glance as she poured herself another scotch. Absolutely not. So, happy new years. Pew, pew. That's fireworks. It is now 1975. An entire calendar year has gone by with Ted Bundy literally getting away with murder. And just to recount his victims so far, Laura Ann Healy, 
Donna Manson, Susan Rancourt, Kathleen Parks, Brenda Ball, Georgian Hawkins, Janice Ott, Denise Nasland, Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Smith, Laura Amy, survivor Carol DeRanch, and Debbie Kent. And unfortunately, 1975 does not see Ted Bundy slowing down. Nope, he continues murdering. So things are heating up in Utah with now Carol DeRanch able to give a description of the person who attacked her and investigators wisely linking her attack and attempted abduction to the abduction of Debbie Kent. And, you know, it's a new year for Ted Bundy, who one would think maybe might mean a new resolve, you know, dedicate his time to, I don't know, being a fucking law student. The reason why he's in Utah in the first place, he's running around telling people, oh, I'm a law student, but he's not actually going. Nope. All that meant for Ted Bundy was leaving the state of Utah and traveling to another state to abduct and murder more women. And this time, this stupid bitch is in Colorado. Specifically, he goes to the Rockies, to Colorado ski resorts. Because of course, this, you know, wannabe bougie bitch, not going to call him a bougie bitch, as a bougie bitch, I would not equate myself with Ted Bundy. He's a wannabe bougie bitch. Fucking loser. Has to steal all sorts of shit anyway. But he went to the ski resorts to pretend to be affluent. And here, Ted Bundy could very easily blend in amongst the transient community of visitors just kind of, you know, passing through these ski resorts in and out. It's like no one's staying there. It's not as if it's like, you know, for people who are from Jersey, I'm from Jersey. Like if you go down to the shore, well, most of those people don't live down the shore. They just go down to the shore to chill and then they come back, whatever. Um, just people passing through for some wintertime fun. So on January 11th, 1975, 23-year-old Karen Campbell, and she's not a Karen Karen. She spelled C-A-R-Y-N Karen. So, so she's actually not a Karen. Um, but Karen Campbell, a nurse from Michigan, traveled to Snowmass, Colorado with her partner, 31-year-old Dr. Raymond Godowski, an osteopath, go off, and his two children, which 23 to 31, look at that age difference. Karen was like, I am locking down the bag. So Karen and Raymond had lived together since the spring of 1974, and they were thinking of getting married. So they traveled to Snowmass for a medical convention, but really it was an excuse just to like hit the slopes, chill, like have some like snow bunny cute, like hot toddies by the fire moment. You know what I mean? Like, of course. And it also was an excuse to give Karen the opportunity to bond with Raymond's kids if she was about to be their new stepmom, you know. On January 11th, they checked into room 210 that had two double beds located at the Wildwood Inn on the second floor, which is about 12 miles from Aspen proper in Colorado. And in all of the books that I've read, like all 11 of them, <laughs> all 11 books about Ted Bundy, it is sporadically recounted that Karen and Raymond maybe argued earlier that day because Raymond wasn't ready to rush into a second marriage. It really is unclear. Like, like some books don't mention a fight at all, but then other books mention that they like they started the day with a fight. So maybe they were fighting. Let's just say they were probably fighting. And now a tedious yet relevant and necessary description of the Wildwood Inn's layout. At the time, the Wildwood Inn consisted of three buildings that formed a U-shape. The inside of this U was styled like a balcony and it left the walkways open to the elements, kind of like prison style, you know what I mean? And all of the rooms faced one another. 
There was what every author calls a heated pool in the center on the ground floor, which I'm sorry, is that just a hot tub? So Kevin Sullivan writes, during the winter months when the temperature dips below zero, hard pass for me, the deep cold of a Colorado winter will continually pull massive amounts of steam off the surface of the heated pool and the fog becomes a curtain where voices can often be heard somewhere in the mist, but faces remain unseen. Literally, it creates an environment or a serial killer. Fuck no. Also, why are people paying money to be somewhere where it's below zero degrees Fahrenheit? Why would you do that? Seems like a waste of money to me. It's giving me very reptilian dead people stealing your soul behavior, but okay. So apparently... Also joining Karen and Raymond on this trip was a fellow medical professional and Karen's ex-boyfriend, Alan Rosenthal, who joined them for dinner on their first night and second night. Like he was hanging out with them. I don't know. I, 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 it wouldn't, it couldn't be me. It couldn't be me. I'd be like, why are you here? Why are you here? I don't know. The next morning, Raymond woke up before everyone else, before Karen and his kids, to attend an 8 a.m. conference. Apparently, the conference, the reason why he's at this resort in the first place, bored him. (laughs) Okay, so he dipped after just an hour, returned to the room to grab breakfast and help Karen get his kids ready for a day of skiing and chilling. Sure, I guess it's very lax. And they had a great time abdicating their duties and not attending the conference that they were supposed to go to, just skiing most of the time and chilling by the fire, etc. And that evening, Karen and Raymond were joined once again by Karen's ex-boyfriend, Alan Rosenthal, for dinner, which I'm sure Karen's current partner, Ray, was just super chill, super happy about, you know, supposed to be a bonding moment for Karen and his kids. They're thinking about getting married and this fucking ex is just hanging around, but okay. So on their way to dinner, Karen decided to leave her purse, which contained her ID and room key back in the room since her partner Raymond like had all of his stuff. Again, this is relevant. On the way to the restaurant, they stopped off at a drugstore where Karen purchased a copy of Viva magazine to read by the fire after dinner. In the drugstore, her ex teased her that he had a copy of Playboy to keep him company. Gross, super weird, inappropriate. And again, I'm sure that her current partner Raymond was soups chill about this joking about having a fucking playboy like what is wrong with men what are you doing (laughs) i got a playboy to keep me company like cool you fucking loser like what that's so weird oh god take away his penis anyway so they grabbed dinner at a restaurant called the stew pot karen had an upset stomach most of the day so she had a beef stew and then a glass of milk to help her upset stomach 1975, a glass of milk, to me, seems like it would hurt. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Do you live your life? Fine. So Karen and her ex, while they're at dinner, continue to joke about the magazine. Notice how they say Karen and her ex and not Raymond. He's not part of this little jokey joke. Because guess what? That's not fucking funny. I wouldn't find that funny. I'd be like, nigga, take your ass on. Like, is he paying for dinner? Anyway, I don't know. So after dinner... They're joking about the magazine. Dinner's over. He offers to switch magazines with Karen. Like, you take my Playboy. I take your Viva magazine. Okay. So Alan, the ex, leaves the lobby to go grab his copy of Playboy. And Karen had the balls to ask her boyfriend, Raymond, if he wouldn't mind going to their room to grab the copy of Viva. So Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth write, Raymond declined, 
somewhat brusquely, saying he'd rather sit by the fire with his kids. Karen turned on her heel in a minor slip and headed for the elevator. So a lot of these authors at this point write like, for whatever reason, Raymond was mad and didn't want to go get the magazine. It's not for whatever reason. He was very much justified to be like, no, I don't want to participate in this weird flirtatious bullshit you have with your fucking ex at dinner. Like, what the fuck? Like, I would have been like, no, bitch, go get it your fucking self. Like, so I don't know why people were trying to pretend that he was just for some reason so mad at her. And for some reason, they got into a fight. And even though she wasn't feeling well, he made her go get the magazine. Like, no, it was super weird and inappropriate. And he was just like, go fuck yourself. So granted, you know, Karen is a victim here in no way, shape or form victim blaming at all. But for this argument, I am team Raymond because that's trash. Like Kevin Sullivan in his account of this fight also writes, inside the lobby now, Karen obviously wanting to stay by the fire asked Raymond to retrieve her magazine, which was on the top shelf of the closet in their room. But whether he was tired from skiing or something was irritating him, he refused to go and handed Karen the key to their room. According to some reports, they may have had additional words, but it was clear the doctor was not getting out of his chair. Like guys, there's no mystery. He told her to go fuck herself because she and her ex were flirting over a fucking Playboy magazine while she was supposed to be bonding with his kids. Can we stop? pretending anyway so karen walks across the lobby and she enters the elevator to ride it up to the second floor she took with her raymond's room key for room 210 as the elevator doors open to the second floor karen got off and spoke with several other physicians waiting for the elevator oh karen hi said dr george bond an acquaintance of raymond's how's it going fine she said smiling and shivering and you Karen Campbell turned and hurried down the dimly lit walkway. That's Ray's new girlfriend, one of the doctors whispered to his wife. Oh, that's too bad, the woman said to herself. She had met Raymond and his wife the year before and thought they were a cute couple. Too bad it didn't work out. These white people were shady as fuck. (laughs) Like, too bad that's his new girlfriend? Okay. So Raymond's kids did try to go with Karen back to the room, but she told them to stay with their dad. If Karen had let the kids join her, there is a very good chance that Ted Bundy would have ignored her and she would still be alive today, which also means that he would have just found someone else to murder, but still, you know. She should have returned to the lounge within 10 minutes, but she never returned. Kevin Sullivan writes, not only did the ascending steam from the heated pool, okay, I'm going to say hot tub because I can't. (laughs) It's a hot tub. Not only did the ascending steam from the hot tub below play a role in obscuring Karen from anyone who might have been in the hot tub and looked up, but a service closet was situated directly across from her room door, which also formed as a type of shield. However, as Karen walked across the balcony, she spotted through the wafting steam from the outdoor hot tub a man using crutches while holding ski boots, who appeared to be in need of assistance. Being a kind woman as well as a nurse, Karen called down to Ted Bundy and asked if he needed help. Bundy, who had been trying to get the attention of a different woman near the hot tub, who he hoped would help him to his car, quickly said yes, which, okay, if someone is in the hot tub and it's below zero, why the fuck would they get out and help you to your car? He's so stupid. Anyway, he quickly said yes to Karen and as he would later tell an investigator just before his execution, as they reached the car, he hit her with the ski boots and knocked her out cold. Not one person saw them leave the Wildwood Inn or take the short walk down the steps and make their way toward the parking lot on the side of the building. 
Once inside of Ted Bundy's Volkswagen, or shortly after, he would hit Karen once again in the head with his crowbar, rendering her unconscious. In The Killer Next Door, authors Stephen Wynn and David Merrill recount, After 20 minutes, Raymond folded his newspaper with a sigh. (sighs) Come on, kids, he said. Let's go see what's keeping Karen. On the way up to the elevator, he remembered that he'd given Karen the room key, so he had to knock on the door of room 210. There was no answer, and when he returned with the key from the front desk, he saw no sign of Karen. Her copy of Viva magazine was still by the bed. Locking his children in the room, he began a quick sweep through the bars. He began a quick sweep through the bars. That was his first place thinking she might have gone, gotten wasted. I wonder if like no tea, no shade, if he checked the bars first because he was like, oh my God, maybe she went off with like the extra bar. But you know, he did a quick sweep through the bars and the lounges of the village. Twice he came back to the room to see if she'd return. By the time he checked the cardiologist's wine and cheese party in the Opticon theater <laughs> a second time, The cardiologist's wine and cheese party in the Opticon Theater, the whitest sentence I've ever said. Raymond was nervously searching the faces of the crowd in the village. Shortly after 10 p.m., he called the police. All Karen had been wearing when she left to grab her magazine were blue jeans, her light brown woolly jacket, and boots. It was warm enough to keep her comfortable during the day, but it was unlikely to keep her warm at night in January in Colorado. Again, below zero. An hour later, around 11 p.m., a patrol car from the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office arrived at the Wildwood Inn. The officers spoke to Raymond and gathered information on his would-be fiancé and the events surrounding her disappearance. He told authorities that Karen Campbell was 23 years old, 5'4", and, of course, had shoulder-length brown hair parted down the middle. I mean, we knew that was coming. Raymond told the officers everything and was candid in admitting the argument they had regarding the magazine before her disappearance. The officers tried to assure Raymond that almost everybody who disappeared showed up after the bars were closed and the parties ended. (laughs) Okay. Raymond assured the officers that Karen would never have left in the middle of the night without a word. And he tried to tell them that Karen just simply wasn't like that. She was afraid of the dark. Plus she wasn't feeling well. And maybe she was having a medical emergency and had gotten sicker and actually needed help. So cut the bullshit with she'll show up when the bars and the parties close and go find my fucking girlfriend. Like what the fuck? Like, oh, she'll show up when the bars close. Like do your goddamn jobs. Oh my God. So After completing the initial routine and gathering of information, the police left. And Rule writes, Many times during the night, patrol units would pull up to young women wearing jeans, a woolly jacket, only to find it was someone else. By morning, Raymond was distraught after a sleepless night, the children crying and upset. Aspen police detectives moved through the Wildwood Inn, securing room by room, storerooms, closets, even kitchens, and up through crawl spaces, peering down into elevator shafts looking for Karen. Karen, however, was not anywhere in the lodge. They questioned every guest, but no one had seen Karen Campbell after she said hi to the group at the elevator on the second floor and walked down the hall toward her room. Finally, Raymond packed up their bags and flew home with his children, hoping each time the phone rang that it would somehow be Karen with the logical explanation of why she walked away from him. The call never came. The next day, Detective Sergeant Bill Baldridge called Michael Fisher, pum pum pum, chief criminal investigator for the 9th Judicial District of the state of Colorado and asked him to head over to the Wildwood Inn to investigate the disappearance of Karen Campbell. 
Mike Fisher is a fucking badass. And he also wasn't an investigator who just enter a routine police case unless there were major indicators that a crime may have taken place. Every room of the inn had been checked and as many people as possible had been questioned, but there still was no sign of Karen. Detective Baldridge and Mike Fisher retraced Karen's steps from her lounge to the elevator to room 210. Richard Larson writes, gesturing toward the other wooden walkways fronting on the wings of the inn, Baldridge explained, there were people all over the place at that time of evening, but no one saw or heard anything. Mike Fisher said, I don't like this one at all. It doesn't smell right. It doesn't smell right. I love him. During his drive, Mike Fisher wondered how someone could be abducted from the Wildwood Inn. He thought about Karen's partner, Ray Godowski, and her ex, Alan Rosenthal, and whether or not they would have been able to pull it off because historically speaking, it's always the husband, boyfriend, ex, whatever. So for now, they would be his top two suspects. Kevin Sullivan writes, There was always a chance, experience had taught him, that Karen might turn up. Speaking of it recently, Mike Fisher explained that it wasn't all that unusual for women to disappear at such places, at least temporarily. Mike Fisher said, Aspen is and was well known for strange behavior. And at the time, there was a great deal of cocaine. <laughs> There was a great deal of cocaine available. Alcohol affected people much quicker at 8,000 feet, and it was consumed like prohibition was just around the corner. A young, attractive woman could walk away from her partner, find another, and then turn up by noon the following day with buyer's remorse or at the ER with an overdose problem. It happened a lot, but there was always someone or something that pointed in that direction. Karen's disappearance had nothing but mystery each time he looked around the corner. Not buyer's remorse, not showing up at the ER, not disappearing with another partner. Okay, Aspen. Karen's partner, Raymond, had the horrible job of calling Karen's family back in Michigan with the news that she was gone. Her brother, Bob Campbell, happened to be a police officer in Florida, and he immediately got his ass on a plane, flew to Colorado, and decided to assist in the search to find his sister, which Jesus Christ. Her brother, Bob, asked investigator Mike Fisher for information about Karen's appearance. Mike Fisher said, it's not good, Bob. Not good at all. There's nothing to go on. Usually, we have a good handle on what goes on around here. And Snowmass, Aspen, Glenwood, anywhere around here. If some drunk cowboy picks up a girl in a bar, we know about it. Fast. We've got good grapevines. But on this, we've got zero. Richard Larson writes, Her brother Bob hypothesized a scenario in which Karen could have been approached by someone posing as a police officer. He said, I'm a police officer and I'm her brother. Karen always has respected the police. She wouldn't go off with just anyone. But if some guy had shown her a badge and said he needed her assistance, I don't know. Bob conducted his own personal search, tracing Karen's steps dozens of times, asking questions, looking into cars, etc. He kicked away the snow cover to search the village garbage dump for anything, maybe an article of his sister's clothing, anything to help. By Saturday, six days after Karen's disappearance, her brother had to give up and fly home back to Fort Lauderdale to return to his job as a patrolman, which I hope he's doing okay because that must be fucking infuriating and so stressful and traumatizing. Like he was looking in fucking the garbage jump, like Jesus Christ. Like anyway, so besides the interviews with Karen's partner, Raymond, and her ex, Alan Rosenthal, Investigator Mike Fisher interviewed the numerous guests at the Wildwood Inn, which was full to capacity at the time of her disappearance. Kevin Sullivan writes, 
One room at a time, Fisher began knocking on doors. These interviews lasted for a week, and some visitors, because of scheduling problems, had to be awakened as late as 3 a.m. Yet even these people, Fisher added, were very cooperative once they knew what the investigation was about. As I conducted my interviews, I couldn't help but notice that the swimming pool was almost invisible from the second floor walkway due to the rising steam from the warm pool water. Those were some of the coldest nights I ever spent anywhere, and I had to wait and watch for guests to return to their rooms, give them a few minutes, and knock on their door. It gave me a lot of time to contemplate what had happened there. The lack of observation showed me that the walkway to Karen's room could not be seen by anyone other than the person who abducted her. I came to the troubling conclusion that her abductor had her cooperation when leaving the more public areas of the Wildwood Inn. Ultimately, investigator Mike Fisher did not believe Karen's partner, Ray, was guilty. His account of Karen's disappearance was corroborated by his children and the other guests at the inn that evening. Ray even submitted to a polygraph test, which we know that's inaccurate, but he submitted to a polygraph test. The results were inconclusive, which, questionable. But Mike Fisher said that Ray was definitely not deceptive to any of the issues. So unfortunately, and I guess fortunately, because it gave her family closure, on February 17th, 1975, the body of Karen Campbell was discovered. A recreational employee working along the Owl Creek Road, located almost three miles away from the Wildwood Inn, noticed a flight of squawking birds that were circling something in the snowbank a few feet off the main road. The employee then, to their horrifying dismay, I'm sure, discovered Karen's nude, frozen, and partially eaten body lying in the snow, heavily stained red by her blood. Investigator Mike Fisher arrived and helped to prepare Karen's body to be transferred to Howard Mortuary in Denver to be autopsied by pathologist Dr. Donald M. Clark. Apparently, District Attorney Steve Waters was super positive when he told Investigator Fisher, Fish, you're never going to find out who did this. You got nothing to work with. Just quit or admit that you hate women or both. Like, can't he at least fucking try to, I don't know, do his literal job? So what should he do? Just sit in his office and do nothing? It's literally his job. Like fucking pieces of shit, fucking asshole. What was his name? Call him out. District Attorney Steve Waters. Go suck a dick. Anyway. The following day, February 18th, Karen's body had thawed enough for a pathologist, Dr. Donald Clark, to perform the autopsy. Through dental records, he was able to confirm that the body was indeed Karen Campbell. Trigger warning, I will now go into details of the autopsy of Karen Campbell, and it is not great. So, trigger warning. Anne Rule writes, she had died of repeated blunt instrument blows to her skull and had, in addition, suffered deep cuts from a sharp weapon, a knife, an axe, there was not enough tissue left in the neck area to say whether she had been strangled, but her hyoid bone had been cracked. It was much too late to tell if she had been subjected to sexual attack, but the new condition of her body pointed to rape as a strong motive. Undigested bits of stew and milk were easily identifiable in her stomach. Karen Campbell had been killed within hours after she had eaten on January 12th, which would make the time of her death shortly after she had left the lounge of the Wildwood Inn to go to her room. She had never made it to her room, or if she had, someone had waited inside for her. That seemed unlikely. The room had shown no signs of struggle at all. Somewhere along that well-lighted corridor on the second floor of the Wildwood Inn, somewhere between the elevators and room 210, Karen had met her killer and had seemingly gone with him without a fight. It was a disappearance reminiscent of the Georgian Hawkins case in June of 1974, less than a 50-feet walk to safety and then gone. 
One of Karen's teeth had been broken, corresponding with an overlapping blow to her head. It was determined that Karen's cause of death was blows to the back of the head with a blunt object combined with exposure to sub-zero weather. So she had been beaten unconscious in the head and then died of hypothermia? Like, what the fuck? <sighs> when an acid phosphate test was done on her vagina, it came back positive, most likely indicating sexual assault. Investigative Mike Fisher thought it was unlikely that Karen Campbell's murderer had stayed at the Wildwood Inn as a guest. More likely, he felt, she had been approached on her way to her room and then lured away from the Wildwood Inn under some pretense. There were just way too many guests walking around at that time for someone to have assaulted her and then carried her off without being noticed. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. During his first semester of law school, did you guys forget that Ted Bundy was in law school? Yeah, I keep forgetting until I read articles about people being like, but he's a law student. Like, shut the fuck up. Who fucking cares? Oh my God, who cares? So during his first semester of law school, Ted Bundy didn't attend classes, like, at all. He's known to have attended only three classes during his first semester at law school. So I don't want to hear goddamn word about this stupid bitch being a fucking law student because this bitch went to three classes in an entire semester. Is that even a week's worth of classes? Like, give me a fucking break. So after like, you know, being a stupid dickhead, not attending classes because he was murdering and abducting women, like, okay, Jan, he tried to make it a point to attend classes more regularly during his spring semester. And Kevin Sullivan in the Bundy murders recounts some classmates who recall seeing Ted Bundy during his lame ass attempt at playing law student and they have some shit to say. So he writes, Andrew Valdez, also a freshman in the law school fall of 1974, said about Ted Bundy. He first introduced himself to me in a contracts class. I thought he was a transfer student because I'd never seen him there before. <laughs> I remember him for his ability to pass tough classes when he rarely went to school. <laughs> when Bartholomew, the whitest name I've ever heard, <laughs> when Bartholomew, who was two years ahead of Ted Bundy, remembered seeing Bundy in class one Monday, quote, in the winter of 1975, looking haggard with bags under his eyes and crimson red scratches branded across his cheeks and neck. When Bartholomew asked Ted Bundy if he had, quote, a rough date this weekend, what the fuck does that mean, Bartholomew? Probably another cis hetero white man who doesn't understand the word. No, what the fuck? Like, nigga, what in the actual ever living perfectly untouched fuck did you just say? A rough date this weekend? I'm sorry, is this some rape culture bullshit? Fuck you. And then Ted Bundy, <laughs> the mastermind that is Ted Bundy, gave Bartholomew an elaborate story about how the scratches were caused by a tree branch. And apparently Bartholomew didn't believe him, which, okay, but the fact that his brain immediately went to like a rough date, which, what the fuck? What the fuck is that? And, you know, of course, of course we gotta check in with our homegirl Liz still trying to ride or die for fucking Ted Bundy, but here we go. And this account that Liz has takes place right after uh, he tried to abduct Carol DeRanch, but failed. So, as our plane circled over Salt Lake City, I was numb from a lack of sleep. Ted was going to meet us and drive us to Ogden, but when we walked into the terminal, he wasn't in sight. Late as usual, I told myself. Then, suddenly, he was there. He threw his arms around me and we rocked back and forth. <laughs> We 
okay, I need to get through this. Okay. He threw his arms around me and we rocked back and forth. Bitch literally has been calling the cops on this motherfucker multiple times, meeting with them in her car, giving them photos of Ted Bundy because she thinks he is a fucking serial killer. Like literally she thinks he's the person abducting and murdering these women and she is make it make sense. So she says, I had forgotten how good it felt when he hugged me. Then a hug for Molly. And then another hug for me. Then Molly and I hugged each other just to round things out. We walked arm in arm down the concourse. It looks like you bought some extra bags, he said, indicating the dark circles under my eyes, literally nagging her, which, nigga, what the fuck? Like, it looks like you bought some extra bags, pointing out the bags under her eyes. What the fuck? How unkind of you to notice, I said. We both laughed. We collected my real bags, skis, poles, and boots, and we were off. Before we drove to Ogden, Ted wanted to show me his apartment and the law school and the places he hung out. I couldn't have been more relieved sitting next to him in the car, laughing, talking, enjoying his company. I could understand why my dad was so stunned by my early morning phone call. As we walked into Ted's apartment, the phone rang. It was my dad. Are you all right? Oh, yes, I answered. Everything is just fine. The holidays were wonderful. We spent the days going to Ted's favorite places in Salt Lake City. We visited friends and relatives. Once again, I realized what a gift Ted had for being at ease in social situations. I still watched his every move, but what I saw was Ted playing games with Molly, carrying my niece on his shoulders, helping my mom in the kitchen. Sorry, are you suddenly a fucking body language expert? A therapist? No. You have literally no sort of educational background and how to determine the body language or the indicators of someone with a violent antisocial personality. So stop trying to play motherfucking Sherlock Holmes and Nancy Drew and get this motherfucker away from your daughter and your niece and your family. Like literally calling the police multiple times and be like, oh, well, he's acting normal. Bitch, what do you want him to do? Walk around with a fucking like hunchback and crooked eye and slime coming out of his mouth. He's trying to blend in. That's how they get away with this shit. Like people are so dumb. Anyway, so to his, like, you know, her studying his body language, she says, Hardly the actions of a madman. How many madmen do you know, Liz? Name one. Name one. The shadows were lifting, and I thank God for the peace of mind I was beginning to feel. Again, leave God out of this. He's probably like this bitch. But there were bad times, like the day we went skiing. It started off on a laurel and hearty note. We loaded our skis on the back of Ted's Volkswagen while it was still in my parents' garage. And when we backed out, the tips of the skis caught on the top of the garage door and pulled the whole ski rack off the car. We looked at each other and laughed. The sophisticated skiers off on a jaunt. <laughs> we drove to Snowbird, a first-class resort east of Salt Lake City. Unfortunately, it looked as if half California had come to Snowbird for Christmas break. They'd have to pay me to stay in the nose lines, Ted said. We decided to have lunch in the lodge and skip the skiing. We had to park in an outer parking lot, but that was okay because the resort sent big open trucks to pick people up and take them to the lodge. As we sat down in the truck on a bale of hay, a young attractive woman started a conversation with Ted. He was so charming. She was soon telling him that she was from California and that she had come to Utah alone to do some skiing. I found myself thinking how easy it would be to trust this man, to go with him and die, which if she wasn't there, that's literally what he would have done with this fucking woman. And yet she had this thought about him and continued to invite him into her life and around her kid and parents. I didn't have much to say over lunch. I was fighting those feelings again. Ted was watching a bunch of teenagers horsing around. 
He dubbed the boy the girls were paying the most attention to the James Dean of Midvale. Midvale was where Melissa Smith had disappeared. Would a time ever come where everything didn't remind me of murder? Probably was also watching an opportunity to abduct the girls, but okay. We drove back to Ted's apartment. I had the urge to rip open his drawers and turn everything upside down and pull out everything out of the closet so I would <laughs> so I would know there was nothing to worry about. If you're so like, it's not like she's worried about something small. Like she's worried about him being a fucking murderer. Why would you go there? Jesus, the lack of self-preservation is just breathtakingly stupid. She says, Ted had a little blue bottle of liquor. He said a woman who lived downstairs had made, probably Wanda, you know, that girlfriend from the beginning of the episode. Here, have a taste, he said, holding the bottle out to me. No, no thanks, I said. I just knew it was a knockout potion. You'll like it. Just have a sample. He walked toward me, holding the bottle in front of him. My mind was racing. No, I don't want any. I don't trust the homemade stuff. It's okay. She makes it all the time. Here, just smell it. He thrust the bottle under my nose. I don't want to just smell it, I said and moved away from him, ready to flee. Suit yourself, he said, and took a big swig. The problem, as usual, was me. No, it's not. Stop gaslighting yourself, Liz. Like, the fact that she said no. Let me see. One, two... Three fucking times before this bitch stopped. One should be sufficient. Again, not respecting her boundaries. Fucking asshole. She says, I flew back to Seattle feeling better. My obsession with murder was gone, leaving as mysteriously as it had arrived. Ted would be flying to Seattle in two weeks at his semester break. I was genuinely looking forward to having him with me. I don't understand why. The first Sunday after I got back, I went to tell my bishop the good news. My prayers had been answered. He was clearly happy for me, but he still thought I should check with the King County Police to make sure they had notified Salt Lake City. What for? I was irritated. Is an answer to a prayer still an answer? Sorry, how were her prayers answered? Because, what, she had a good time with him? But did she have a good time? She was literally freaking out and worried the whole time, wanting to tear his room apart and looking at him, talking to other girls, thinking about how they would go away with him and thinking he was trying to drug her with a knockout potion, like... No, your, her whole trip was plagued with thoughts of murder. So she didn't have a good time. She's just being delusional. Also, like, what was the point of going to someone for advice to not listen to it? I hate when people fucking do that. Like, don't ask someone for advice if you're not going to fucking take it. Just either sit with your stupidity and ignorance or listen to your friend, period. She says, my bishop thought I should stamp out all doubt. Otherwise, it might linger in a corner of my mind and fester and then, well, it might start all over again. He was probably right. But I knew for sure that I wasn't going to call Hirschmeyer again. This time, I was going to call Salt Lake City. I put it off as long as I could. I was feeling so much better. Why stir the pot again? Ted would be here in a couple of days, though, so I'd better get it over with. I slipped away to the same phone booth I'd been using to call Hirschmeyer and called the information unit in Utah for the number of the Salt Lake Homicide Division. I was shaking as much as I had the first day I called the police. A woman answered, I'd like to speak to someone who knows about the woman who escaped from a Volkswagen, you know, by the shopping center. I'm pausing a lot because there's a lot of ellipses, but I also don't have the patience to deal with this stupidity. So that's how you're getting it. Just a moment, please. She put me on hold. Figure out what you're going to say for God's sake, I told myself. Instead, I stared blankly at the dialing instructions on the phone. She came back on the line. May I ask who's calling? Oh, I, I don't feel I can say that. But it's real important. Bitch, she's done this so many times with the police in Seattle. She should know that they're going to ask for her name. And yet here we are. 
My voice was cracking, and I could feel the tears backing up. I'm calling from Seattle, and I just really need to talk to someone there. She put me on hold again. I rummaged in my purse for a Kleenex. Not only was I crying, but now my nose was running. Like, like, ovary up, you made this choice, follow through, also dump him. Great, just great. I would sound like a sniveling idiot. Captain Hayward here. I jumped. Then I started one of my long, rambling sentences about my friend and his Volkswagen and where he lived and where he moved to. Hayward cut me off. I think we've already investigated him. What's his name? When I told him, he said, We looked at him a few months ago when your police up there contacted us. He looked okay. Weren't you just here for vacation? How did he know that? Liz, because they're the police. Liz, they're the police investigating someone for murder. They, of course, know your travel habits, bitch. Like, who does she think she was calling? How did he know that? Hayward asked me what had happened. What happened when? I was confused. Well, we had a nice vacation, I said. Nothing seemed wrong. Then why are you calling today? What happened? Well, I was asking myself the same thing. I was just worried, I said. Well, don't worry. We checked him out. There's nothing there to lead us to believe he's anything more than just a law student. This is where it starts. I finally gave Hayward my name, which of course he must have known, and then I hung up feeling like a fool. I stared at the phone. It had to be the dirtiest phone I'd ever seen. I hoped I didn't get a disease from it. Then I remembered that I had called Salt Lake City because Hergschmeyer had let me believe that he hadn't. What a creep! Hergschmeyer actually did not lead her to believe that he hadn't. He just said, I'm busy. Stop calling me and let me do my job. Not once did he say, I... Anyway, as soon as his finals were over, Ted was to catch an evening flight to Seattle. But I got a phone call early that morning. Ted was crying and having a hard time talking. He wasn't happy with himself. I asked if he had bombed on his finals. It's not that, he said. I just can't seem to connect with people. Sure, I can hold doors open for women and smile and be charming. But when it comes to basic relationships, I just don't have it. There's something wrong with me. Red motherfucking flags liz this isn't even a red flag this is like a fucking flare gun Liz, this is like a red flare also holding the doors open does not equate to human contact you dipshit she says i wasn't sure what he was telling me two police departments had checked him out three times i wasn't going to get into that again on the surface it sounded very much as if he felt bad because he didn't have a girlfriend in salt lake city and wanted to cry on my shoulder about that i wanted him to come to seattle Please come. We can talk and talk when you're here. And we can hug and hold. And we can hug. And we can. We can. We can talk and talk when you're here. And we can hug and hold. That's the sentence. We can hug and hold. It's a lack of grammar for me. You'll feel better. I guarantee it. <laughs> also, notice how her mind immediately jumps to, oh, the problem is that he doesn't have a girlfriend in Salt Lake City, which mama, he does. No, I can't. I just don't think so, he said. We can walk down the Ave and, and get a sandwich at Gillies and, and maybe we'll go see the Huskies play basketball. I don't know. I'll call you back, he told me. And he did call back, twice. Once to tell me he was coming, the second time to tell me he wasn't. After we talked a bit, he changed his mind again and said he would come. I couldn't do it. I literally couldn't date someone like this. Okay. So, when I picked him up at the airport that night, he was happy and confident. It was hard to believe he had been in the throes of indecision all day. He was carrying a brochure from a ski resort in Aspen. 
A man sitting next to him on the plane, a salesman for dental equipment, had been on a ski trip to Colorado and had given Ted the brochure. That brochure was to the ski resort where he killed Karen fucking Campbell. And this bitch was literally just carrying it around. Brazen. Brazen. Oh my God. She says, Ted was also carrying late Christmas presents for Molly and me. It was a marvelous visit. I no longer watched his every move, but I just enjoyed the things about him that made me love him. At moments, I would get cold sweat. <laughs> I would get cold sweats thinking about what I had done to him by calling the police. But then how would he ever find out? I don't know. Maybe we write a whole fucking book about it. I'm over it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, pew, 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 pew. We did it. We did it, guys. We did it. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next Friday for episode 10, where a second grave site, dump site, whatever you want to call it, is discovered, Taylor Mountain. And it is gruesome. It is not fun. It is not pleasant. But again, Ted Bundy podcast. Please check the show notes for all of the sources used in today's episode. Please stay tuned for some wonderful purrs from my kitten because it is a wonderful, amazing palate cleanser. If you would like to contact me and stay in touch, you can email truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at truecrimeaficionados. And if you want me just being fucking adorable and cute, (laughs) you can follow me on TikTok at Misha Iman. It is not true crime related. It's literally just me like chilling and vibing. It's a whole fucking mood. Thank you so much. And as always, keep your head on a swivel. Bye. I love you too. Oh my god. Okay, okay, that's enough. Okay, that's enough.